On this episode of This Week in Linux, we take a look at some distro news with Peppermint 19, DevWine 2.0, Gecko Linux based on OpenSUSE Elite 15, and we take a closer look at Linux Mint 19, which should be coming pretty soon. New version of KDE Plasma was released with 5.13, and a major version for Pulse Audio has been announced with 12.0. Then later in the show, we'll take a look at some interesting data from the Ubuntu Report, uh, first look at their desktop matrix, as well as a project to run Wine applications inside a Flatpak. There may be a revolution on the horizon for IRC, thanks to London Trust Media, or the parent company of Private Internet Access, and also some really cool discounts and sales coming from Steam Summer Sale. They have some things all, all the way up to 95% off, so if you're into Linux gaming or looking to get into it, this is a perfect time to do that, as well as there's a fanatical sale going on for the Red Hot sale. And then later in the show, we'll take a look at some crypto miner issues that Docker has been having for... Well, quite a while. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and this is your source for Linux GNUs. This episode is brought to you by the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt. It's the shirt I made to celebrate the proliferation of Linux. The concept of the design has Tux blended into the background to convey the message, even if you aren't aware that Linux is there, it probably is. The shirt is available for shipping from North America and from Europe. You can check it out by going to touchdigital.com slash Linux is everywhere, or just go to touchdigital.com slash contribute to learn more. First up in the show is Peppermint 9. It was released this week. Peppermint 9 is based on the 1804 LTS code base, and they've done a lot of cool things that are mostly like iteration stuff. They're like in polish and improvements on various different things, so it's not like a, a massive change. But a lot of the things that they change is very nice, and very, and especially for user experience and convenience. So one of the things that I was hoping that more distros would adopt is setting up Menu Libre to use, well, if it's GTK-based is especially, to set up Menu Libre as a menu editor for their default structures for editing .desktop files. And because Menu Libre is fantastic, and if you haven't heard of it, it's a menu editor that allows you to change the titles, the icons, and things like that in the various menus of different desktop environments. You can find a link in the show notes for a video I made about Menu Libre if you'd like to. But anyway, it's really cool that they have now adopted it as an, a default. And they also fixed some quirks from the previous version of Peppermint that was why they didn't have it by default. So that's really cool. They've also made it so that you can use both the Mint Software Manager and the GNOME Software Manager so that you can use the what you're, the, the users that are used to doing the Mint Software Manager and also ability to use Snaps and Flatpaks through the GNOME software. So that is very cool and I'm, I haven't actually tried Peppermint 9 yet but I am going to immediately after the stream. So if you haven't tried it, be sure to do that and you can check a link in the show notes. KDE released Plasma 5.13 recently, and there's a lot of cool features coming with Plasma 5.13. If you've, you want to look at the video that we created, uh, I participated and contributed to making the re release video for Plasma 5.13, along with Chris Fisher of Jupiter Broadcasting. So if you haven't seen that, be sure to check that out in the links in the show notes. But to be more like we're talking about the, what actually happened in, in Plasma 5.13, uh, there's one of the coolest things is the browser integration feature. So it allows you to integrate the Plasma desktop with Firefox and Chromium, as well as things based on Chromium. So what's what's cool is that you can now have your downloads, like the percentage of your downloads display as a notification in your desktop. You can have media controls to manage and how you use like the audio or video playing in a tab. What's really cool about that is that it integrates with KDE Connect so that you can have a YouTube video playing and then pause it and stop it or you know cancel it or whatever with your phone via the KDE Connect uh, drop-down notification uh, options. Really awesome. Um, I didn't really think I would be using it that much, and turns out I, I do. It's pretty cool. So other things that they added were improved Plasma Media Control Plasmoids so that you can now have a lot more players that work with it. And... There's a lot of cool things that are coming with uh, Plasma Vaults, so that you can now uh, you can have. There's better error reporting. There's now better, more polished interface. They b rebuilt a whole new backend with CryFS, which is pretty cool. 
And I don't know why, but I like the idea of making it there an ability to remotely open and close vaults with your phone via KDE Connect. I mean, that seems kind of unnecessary because you, you're usually opening it for security, so you should be there when you do it. But, you know, it's a convenience, and why not, right? I like it. Anyway. Another cool thing about it is that they added this external monitor pop-up so that when you, uh, you connect, the first time you connect a external monitor to a laptop or a desktop or whatever, so like just a new monitor that you, from an already running system, it will pop up a thing that shows, it asks you where do you want to put that monitor. So you can just choose where, what, ori what um, orientation and location you want the monitor to go into. So if you want the monitor on your left or the right, you just click the icon and it automatically puts it there. So that is a very nice thing that it used to be kind of a difficult thing to deal with as far as adding new external monitors in Plasma. And back in the day, it used to be really bad uh, in the sense that if you wanted to mirror your monitors, you had to like set the icon, the, the uh, display things on top of each other. You'd have to know that you have to do that. And Anyway, now you can just click the mirror button and that's it. So anyway, if you want to check out more, uh, especially things I didn't talk about, like the improved lock screens and login screens, as well as the whole blur system that comes in KWIN, which, by the way, really cool. I'm going to do some videos, like like some demonstration videos about what's in Plasma 5.13 later on. So if you want to subscribe for the, to the channel for that. And uh, check out the link in the show notes for the rest of the announcement. Up next in the show is Pulse Audio 12.0 was released. And there's a lot of improvements, including some more accurate latency reporting for AirPlay devices, better support for Bluetooth. Like there was an issue where headsets um, they they can headsets can indicate that they support Bluetooth in a, in two different ways. And Pulse Audio only recognized one way prior to 12.0. So now 12.0 supports both of those types of headsets uh, declarations. So now it'll work with pretty much all headsets or you know hopefully they also changed it so that there's a default the default output will choose HDMI output output over SPDIF output so if you're doing like external devices or things like that it uses HDMI as a default now because you know HDMI is probably the most preferred method of most devices and it just kind of makes sense and 12.0 introduces that as the default so that's really cool. And if you would like to know more about what happened in Pulse Audio, or you would just like to complain about Pulse Audio, you can check for a link in the show notes and leave a comment down below. Up next in the show, Will Cook posted a blog post on the Ubuntu blog about the first look at the desktop metric, metrics or the Ubuntu report data. So this is really interesting information because the, this is like, they, they said that it's going to be in October or 1810 release schedules when they're going to make it a much, much more easier to use for everyone. So they can be like, anybody can go look at the data at any time. So that's going to be really cool. But the other thing that they've already provided a little bit of information that's, well, that's, that's more than a little bit, but it's really interesting. So for example, the opt-in rate is 67%, which is pretty cool. And they said that it started to increase from that previous 67. They've also found the, they've, break, they've broken it down into a lot of different things. So, for example, there's 25% uh, are from upgrades, which kind of makes sense because they technically haven't been... Those are people who want to do the upgrade, and they're more than likely uh, probably going to want to do it anyway because they're going to probably choose to do the opt-in because doing an upgrade that quickly before Ubuntu actually like promotes it, you have to manually do that. And in, in July, they're going to release 18.04.1, which will then prompt the user to upgrade to the new LTS from 16.04. And, well, if they were doing 17.10, it would ask them then to them. But anyway, the other thing is they've also seen that 90% of users are doing the auto-update. So that's pretty cool. But one of the things that's it's interesting is that they over 50% of users are choosing to restricted add-ons which kind of makes sense because I, I would assume more than that I would say like I would I would think the people who don't choose it likely don't know what they are or something like that so I would say like it in my opinion it'd probably be like 80 percent because it's like I think every installation tutorial tells you to use it because there's you know it's better to do it 
and uh, 53% of users choose to erase the entire drive and install the system. That's interesting because it's, I would assume that the majority would be like install alongside Windows, for example, but that's a very small percentage that actually does that. So anyway, if you'd like to check out the rest of the data, which there is quite a lot, uh, you find a link in the show notes. Up next on the show is Linux Mint 19 Terra beta released, and there's actually going to be fairly soon, sometime this month, more than likely, uh, they, they announced that later in the month that they're going to release the full version. We don't have an exact date yet, but it's pretty soon. So I wanted to talk about the things that are coming in this release. So Linux Mint 19 is going to be based on 1804 LTS, so it will have a support cycle, basically the same support cycle of the five years. They've they've decided to change a lot of things. Like a lot of cool things are being added, and some other things are being removed that I didn't really like in the past. So that's really cool. So f- start off, we're going to talk about the brand new welcome screen. So the welcome screen has a, a lot of interesting changes to it, so that you can now do certain steps inside of the welcome screen and get documentation and things like that. The old welcome screen was kind of lacking. It was it was a little lacking. So. I'm glad to see that they've put some effort into their into a new welcome screen. It's pretty cool. So next up is they've decided to revamp the software manager, and they've added support for Flatpak. They did that in the previous version of 18.3, but this one has many improvements to that. They've One of the things that they did was create this internal cache system and an abstraction layer that, or basically the cache system is an extraction layer, uh, abstraction layer which allows them to use apt and flatpak syntaxes and stuff like that to work in the same method, the same way that everything is handled on the back end for the software manager, but still utilize the default structures that each one of them do. So they've kind of like built a, a buffer layer between the two. Not between the two, but like so that the software manager can use both of them without having to change anything of itself. Uh, the other thing they did was they've changed... One of the things I didn't like about... Linux Mint was some security issues that they did with the update manager. So previously, the update manager had a, a a value system of whether the severity of how important it is, like it's a critical update or a, a regular app update or something like that. And it confused people to think that. Well, actually, no. They they specifically said don't use t- don't typically install these updates because they might break your system and stuff like that. Uh, but most of those updates that they were blocking from people to use were important security updates which created this really big breakpoint of my opinion of their of the distro but thankfully this new version of the update manager no longer does that selective updating and they've changed it to now use time shift as a kind of a backup snapshot approach so that when you update something it will imply it'll apply all of the security updates and everything and if anything goes wrong you can use time shift to go back I don't know if it automatically goes back if it detects a problem or not, but either way, it's really cool that you can do that. So while I would prefer them to fix this, the, the breakpoints of the packaging that creates this issue in the first place, um, I'd like the fact that they're working on, they're making a workaround, so that's really cool, and I very much appreciate that. They've also added the Cinnamon 3.8 to the next release, as well as Mate 1.20. And if you'd like to learn more about those particular uh DE updates, you can find a link in the show notes. Cinnamon 3.8 was talked about in This Week in Linux, episode 28, and Mate 1.20 was episode 20. So you can find a link to those in the show notes. And um, I I can't wait to try this out. I'm definitely going to try this out, and I'm probably going to make a specific video to demonstrate certain things about Mint that I'm looking forward to. So Linux Mint 19, beta. Up next in the show is Purism Librem 5 announced that they're going to do a secondary processor structure in order to comp- to qualify for the F- Free Software Foundation's Respects Your Freedom hardware endorsement. So in order to do certain things, they need binary blobs to accomplish these things. And when you use a binary blob, the FSF and the Free, so- well, the free Software Foundation, the free software-, free software Culture doesn't recognize that as a a valuable or a viable method of hardware. So like they wanted to be classified as free software certified sort of thing. And the only way to do that they found, or I don't know if that's the only way, but the the solution they found was to, was a secondary processor exclusion 
so that the main processor that handles all the, handles all the software and all the user interaction stuff is separated from the binary blobs. So the binary blobs will be doing uh, will be using a completely different secondary processor, which I think it's the M the M4 pro ARM processor, and the IMX8 is the main processor for the device. So this should keep the processor cores of the the A53 processor to be clean for so that the Free Software Foundation standards will be applicable and they can get like the endorsement. So that's kind of interesting that they're they're going to have to do this kind of thing. So it's a I don't know if it's a like they're calling it a hurdle. I don't know if it's like a, like a big hurdle or a big obstacle, but uh, hopefully they get this solved and hopefully the uh, it's still on time. So far it seems to be, but uh, there's some uh, community arguments whether or not that they will get be on time, and they they make sense you know based on the support for different the processor they're going to be using. So I, I can't wait to see it, and I definitely want to try it. Um, as far as like. I think this is like one of the only mobile devices that I am even remotely interested in. Like there's this new whole uh, ridiculous fad in mobile devices for the notch system. And then there's all these other ones like the Oppo Find X, I think, where they want to have these, they, wanna, they don't want to have a notch, but they want this like full screen display on the device with no bezels or as little bezel as possible. So they have this weird motorized thing where the camera pops out of the top and you know like after like six months that motor is going to just completely break and you will have no ability to use your camera so that doesn't seem like a very good idea and it, it also they also made it so like the back camera is also attached to that thing so you can't even use the back camera i get it maybe if it's like the front camera which has a reason to be away from the display but the back camera is kind of Anyway, I'm looking forward to the Librem 5, and I'm looking forward to sane, reasonable structure of a phone. That'd be nice. The Winepack project was announced recently, and this is a really, really interesting project. So it's essentially like a flat pack for Microsoft Windows applications via Wine, which I really just read off the website. But... That's essentially what it is, but what's really cool about it is that the flat, flat, flat pack applications include a, a, configure, a pre-configured Wine so that you can use Windows applications without much of a hassle. Now, there are certain cases where some of the applications need you to deal with like Wine trick sort of stuff, but what's really cool is that when you perform the Wine trick modifications, it will save it, well, it, sh it should save the compatibility for that particular flat pack or Wine pack or whatever. So the Winepack repository is available and it's very similar to like how FlatHub is. So you can you can add this as a remote for a Flatpak remote so that you can install stuff directly from their repo. And included in that is Overwatch, World of Warcraft, StarCraft 2, Fortnite and some other things. So lots of games obviously is like one of the biggest things that are going to come into that. But there's also other applications like for some reason if you would like to run Internet Explorer 8 on your Linux system, you can with that. So anyway, really cool idea. I'm glad to see this happening and I look forward to playing with all these hopefully playing with these games and it'd be really nice to test and see if they if they work well and if they do might do some streaming with them or something. You never know. So uh, check the link to their video in the video description for Winepack project for the Winepack repo. Up next in the show is breaking news. No one has remotely covered this at all. This is so new to everyone. Uh, Microsoft has purchased GitHub. So if it actually is new to you, I'll go ahead and tell you the basics. But so Microsoft decided to purchase GitHub for seven point five billion dollars, and that is. True, but it's more like it's also stock values and stuff like that. So it's not like they gave them seven. Like. So a lot of people are bothered by this news because they're looking at GitHub as like an open source, uh, not really open source, but like as a ecosystem that stores a lot of open source code. And because it was independent, they were more trust. They, they felt like they were more trustworthy, even though the software and the servers and everything that is that makes GitHub is proprietary. They're them storing the open source code makes it easier like makes microsoft controlling that ecosystem is potentially bothersome to people 
completely understandable considering the you know the history of Microsoft has been awful where they just completely uh, attacked open source and Linux and everything as much as they could to the point of even calling it cancer. But at one point, those people who were involved with Microsoft that had that opinion are no longer there, which was like 2014. And the new head of Microsoft is more open to the idea of open source and sharing and all that other stuff. It's still like, I mean, I'm cautious, cautiously optimistic. I still don't, I don't really trust Microsoft, of course, because they've proven themselves over decades that they're not really trustable. But I'm, I, after looking at the potentials of the other companies that could have purchased GitHub, which is multiples we're trying, including Google and Oracle, both of which would be absolutely terrible, I guess you can kind of say that Microsoft is slightly less terrible than those. I don't know. I'm not... As far as like open source code goes, I don't really think it matters because there's other options like GitLab and GitT and all those other things. You can self-host it. You can use these other services like Bitbucket and etc. So as far as like where you host your code, it's not really matter because especially if it's open source and open licensed, it doesn't really matter that much because you can put it wherever you want and it. And if they decide to you know take your code and fork it and make their own thing with your code, I mean that's what it was designed to do in the first place. So that's like, it doesn't really matter. Um, so I don't really see what like they could in a couple years, maybe after like, you know, two or three years implement some changes that would be problematic for the community that that's possible. But right now it's more than likely they're not going to do anything for at least a little while, but you know, never, you never know some point in the future, they might do something that's ridiculous. But as far as open source code goes, you know, you can transfer that wherever you want it to do. As long as it has Git, you're fine. And considering GitHub doesn't own Git, it doesn't really matter if Microsoft buys GitHub in the, you know, the grand scheme of things. So and it's, it's problematic. I'm not really, um, I'm, I'm skeptical, but I'm also not dismissive of it. You know, I'm, I'm interested to see what happens. Um, I'm more, uh, the thing that makes me more cautious is not really them purchasing GitHub is by purchasing GitHub. They also purchase the Atom text editor, and also not as important, but more importantly is Electron. So GitHub created the Electron framework, and now Microsoft owns the Electron framework, and technically it is open source, but they are now in control of the overall framework, so yes, you could take it and make another one, but um, it's still, that's the only thing that would make me cautious about it, so um, I'm curious to see what happens, and uh, let, let me know what you think in the comments below. Google announced their VR 180 creator tool, which makes it easy to easier to edit VR video or virtual reality video on Linux. They released the VR 180 creator on Mac and Linux, but interesting enough, it apparently was not released on Windows. So I'm not sure if that, that means they're not going to do that ever, or when they probably or they plan to do it, and they they probably will do it based. You know, odds are they probably will eventually release it for Windows. But it's really cool to see that for now. Linux has a higher priority for this release. That's 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 pretty cool, and it allows you to edit virtual uh, VR video and convert it to VR friendly formats and things like that. If you if you are in the the space of wanting to make VR content, it's really nice that you can now do that with Linux. So if you want to check out some more information about that, you can find a link in the show notes. It was a recently there was a 35 year anniversary of the GIF format. That is GIF with a G and Google decided to announce a new piece of software that allows you to convert a GIF into ASCII art or other kinds of command line interface image animation stuff. So this is kind of cool in the why would they make this, this is ridiculous kind of way. But you can take it and make this kind of uh, setup. Why would you want to do that? I don't know. It's still kind of cool. So anyway, if you're interested in that, you check out a link in the show notes for that, the GIF to CLI tool. Speaking of GIFs, there's an open source video to GIF maker now called GIF Curry. And GIF Curry is actually pretty cool in the sense that it allows you to take the videos that you have, turn them into GIFs, and then you could use the GIF to CLI to make the ASCII GIFs if you'd like to do that. This is an, a really interesting tool because it's not just, hey, make a video, turn it into a GIF. It allows you to like crop the video, trim it, 
like go seek to a specific section of the video, add text, you know, add custom font text and all kinds of stuff. You can change how like the size of the video, the quality for your like for the rendering, like all kinds of stuff. It's it's actually pretty cool as far as like the power and flexibility that it gives you to do something that seemingly is pretty simple but allows you to do a lot of extra stuff to make it even better. Uh, and it also allows you to, you know, use a pre a preview screen to see what your changes are doing to the output the end result. So the if you're interested in checking it out, there is an app image and a snap for Gift Carry. So you can find a link to those in the show notes below. Next up in the show is Timekeeper Revived. Now this they had a re release a couple weeks ago, so uh, it's not totally it's not exactly this week, but this is a really cool uh, piece of software that might be useful to a lot of people or some people at least. Um, what it does is allow you to create kind of like a parental control approach to uh, users for like your kids and stuff like that. So you can limit the amount of time that someone can use the computer as the user, a particular user on the device. So if you set up users for each of your kids, you can say that they can only use the computer during a certain amount of time or, you know, for a certain duration of time and things like that. It allows you to configure that sort of thing on a, like even on a per day usage sort of thing. So it's, it's a really cool piece of software that uh, just had a new update. So if you're interested, check it out. It works on, so far, it works on pretty much all DEs. And they made an update for KDE Plasma 5 that fixed some of that. So that's pretty good. And um, if you're interested in checking that out, let me know. I mean, I, I want to see if, if there's anybody who would be interested in this kind of thing. Just let me know in the comments below. And if you do check it out, let me know what you think as well. Check out the show notes for the link to Timekeeper Revived. We got some really good news for the PeerTube project. If you haven't heard of PeerTube, it's a federated video platform similar to YouTube, but is more like a peer-to-peer crowdsource platform. And they asked for 20,000 euros, and they've actually surpassed that. So they've actually, for the, at this moment, they've got 21,575, which there's still 12 days left to get more if there's people who are looking to do, help them do like their stretch goals and things like that. But PeerTube is a free and federated video platform, and it's basically it's a Libra-licensed system. And what's really cool about it is that it, the federated part, or the federation, federated system allows for a wider audience of videos than hosting your own instance like or solution for like in general, because it allows you to connect your instance with other instances inside of the federation. They do this by using a peer-to-peer -peer streaming structure via web to web torrent. So that when you, if you can have files on your computer or on a server, and then other people could connect to those files and have pieces of those files and share it, so that when someone watches a video, they're not necessarily taking the video from the host server; they could be sharing it to a wide variety of people. So it's an interesting idea, and they they've also talked about the the when they the they announced the first version coming by getting this gold of the 100% gold they made an update saying that version 1 will be coming in October 2018 and it's going to have the federation system built into it it's going to have the peer to peer streaming part it's going to have interface localization for a variety of languages video subtitles rss feed system uh, video importing which is probably the coolest thing i think well they're all really cool but like a convenience part of cool is the importing thing because it allows you to take YouTube videos, Vimeo, and Daily Motion videos, and others, or a torrent file, and import it into the system, and it will just like automatically pull it into your instance or an instance that you're using. So that's pretty awesome. If you want to check out more about PeerTube, you can check out the link in the show notes. And if you want to, uh, you know, contribute to the or back the project, the crowdfunding. This is a, I never heard of this crowdfunding platform until I saw this this, this PeerTube project doing it, and I like the name because of how ridiculous it is. But it's you can find their crowdfunding campaign at kisskissbankbank.com. <laughs> okay, sure. Up next on the show is Fedora Core OS was announced, and the leader of the Fedora project, Matthew Miller. Uh, said on this blog post that they want to keep the they want the CoreOS user experience to retain for the CoreOS system so that you can have the the fully uh, container cluster hosted OS kind of thing. 
they want to have it like so you can have it up to date itself and things like that. They want to keep that functionality. So the first question is what's going to happen to Fedora Atomic Host if Fedora Core S becomes a thing? And he answered that he expects with over the next year or so that they will be replacing Container Linux and Project Atomic with some kind of combination of the two of Fedora Atomic and the Container Linux structure, which would then create Fedora Core OS. Now, uh, this would kind of be like an upstream uh, testing bed for Red Hat Core OS, which they announced uh, a couple weeks ago, or like a week ago, anyway. So when I first heard that Red Hat Core OS was announced, I was hoping that maybe they make a Fedora Core OS. And the only reason I care that they did this is because Fedora, if you're not aware, used to be called Fedora Core. So like the, like the main offering for Fedora as an ISO or download was was called Fedora Core, like Fedora Core 6 and stuff like that. So I just think it's fun that they now, by Red Hat purchasing CoreOS and then making a project, we're using CoreOS, now you we get back Fedora Core. So sort of, not exactly. It's not the same thing at all. But I like it. Anyway, if you want to learn more, you can check the link in the show notes. Up next in the show, we got a new release for Dev1, the GNU slash Linux operating system that is based on Debian, but chooses to provide a different init system than System D that Debian uses. So Dev1 2.0, or ASCII, which is fairly convenient for the other topics we talked about earlier in the show. Anyway. So this is a this is a new release for 2.0 for about a year after the first release of 1.0 and Dev1 2.0 is based I think it is it's hard to find the documentation in some places I, maybe I didn't look in the right plot spot I don't know but I'm pretty sure it's Debian stretch is what it's based on and it allows you to use sysvnit or openrc init systems instead of systemd uh, this is like the first year this is the first full big release of Dev1 since the previous release last year um, when they released 1.0. Now, the, the interesting thing about this one is that 1.0 was based on Debian 8, or Jesse, and this is based on Debian 9 uh, stretch. So while it's a year out of date, it's way better than their previous release, which was very much out of date. So I'm glad that they're making, you know, fairly good progress as far as, like, getting, you know, catching up to the Debian releases. So hopefully in the next release of 3.0, they will be somewhere along the lines of like you know compa like same roughly the same. That'd be that'd be nice to see. But anyway, if you don't like System D for some reason, then you might want to check out Dev One 2.0 ASCII. Gecko Linux announced their newest reversion of their distro based on OpenSUSE Leap 15. So Gecko Linux is a derivative of OpenSUSE. If you haven't heard of it before, it it tries to do like an offer more polished user experience with like niceties including. Uh, additional repositories, modifying designs of different like themes and stuff like that, and uh, having additional software included by default. You know, things sort of like that that makes uh, just using the system easier. So it's kind of like uh, what Corora was to Fedora. It's that's kind of like the same thing. So it just it gives an extra polish and like nicer experience. So if you're interested in checking out OpenSUSE and you have like if you if you try to OpenSUSE and it has it has like doesn't work for you, maybe give Gecko Linux a try if you want to you know have something that's based on OpenSUSE or something like that. So feel free to check that out. But Gecko Linux has a static and a rolling version of their system. The stat the rolling version is obviously based on Tumbleweed from OpenSUSE, and the Gecko Linux static is based on Leap 15. So there's a lot of cool things that you know that Leap 15 brought in. We talked about that on a previous episode, so if you want to check out that, that's episode 29, pretty sure. And also there's a kind of a weird, confusing thing on this website. So when you go to their website, the notes that the Gecko static editions are based on OpenSUSE Leap 42.3. I checked it and can confirm that it is based on Leap 15 and not 42. Now, you also might be wondering, what? Why 42 rather than, you know, why is it 15 now if it was 42 or what is going on? OpenSUSE decided to do a weird versioning scheme when they made the Leap system. So it used to be OpenSUSE 13, you know, 12, 11, 12, 13. And then instead of making 14 or Leap 14, they made it 42. So it was Leap 42. 
And then they decided to go back. So technically 42 is really 14. Or Anyway, so now it's Leap 15. Gecko Linux is using Leap 15. So there you go. Maybe in the future they won't do that again. Or OpenSUSE won't do that again. Change the numbering scheme for one release. Anyway, if you're interested in checking out Gecko Linux, there's a link in the show notes. And let me know what you think. Uh, because it's you know if it's, it's designed for an easier user experience. And I want to know if you agree that it does provide a better user experience. So let me know in the comments below. Up next in the show is some really interesting news. And really cool from the... The London Trust Media Company, which owns private internet access, so effectively it's like it's private internet access that are doing it. It's you know essentially, but what they're doing is like a, an IRC revolution. I mean, they're taking so many things that are IRC related and um, just making it so much better. They're supporting it. They're purchasing it in some cases. They've decided to create to purchase uh, IRC.com. So they're going to make I'm not really sure exactly what they're like what this is for but they say it's a it's going to be a professional friendly network for huge communities. Okay. They've already been working for like as far as like working on Ki uh, Kiwi IRC and WeChat as in like providing money for sponsorships. And they purchased Freenode and Snoonet uh, IRC networks. Um they've also supported other networks as well. Like they're very much into IRC, so it's really interesting to see what's happening with this. And they're going to do some other things that are pretty interesting. One is like, you know, really cool. The IRC University that they're going to make is like an education, like a free education for learning IRC and things like that. And they're actually asking for people who would like to teach things about IRC to email them if you want to. They are doing something that's like what now? They're doing IRC gaming. They announced this too, and it's. They really described what it is, but they said that they're going to have like cash prizes for various different types of gaming things through IRC to the point where they they said that they're literally going to give away hundreds of thousands of dollars like in cash prizes and like uh what now? So I'm totally interested to see what happens with this cuz this is like um this is definitely like on the le the scale of revolution for IRC because IRC has kind of like started to fall back to uh, kind of like where it used to be for, you know, core projects using it and open source projects using it and things like that. But then, you know, things like Slack and uh, Mattermost and Matrix and Riot and things like that are taking over or like Microsoft Teams or whatever. Uh, those things are kind of were like taking away most of what IRC was good for. But one of the things that is really awesome about like there's some really interesting things like the IRC gaming thing and the IRC ventures where they're doing like incubation stuff like venture capitalism stuff on IRC whatever that means I don't know but what's really cool and I don't know how far this goes but the way they describe it is kind of like amazing because one of the biggest things that it's wrong with IRC as far as usability goes especially if you're getting new people to use it is the logs and or the lack of logs the lack of history for conversation so if you're not there right at the time of that conversation you miss the conversation so it'd be really cool if you could do a history system and be able to you know see what you missed by logging into a system that is always there now there's a thing there's things called IRC bouncers and they basically do the exact thing that we're I'm referring to that allow you to have a server install a bouncer and that bouncer connects to all these IRC networks and then you connect to the bouncer so the bouncer is on the server which then connects to these other servers and they're always online and always connected so you don't have to be so the history is there and completely fine now the problem with that is IRC bouncers are pretty difficult to set up for most people and even if you are experienced with IRC it still can be kind of a pain to set it up but they're saying that they're gonna provide an IRC bouncer that will support all IRC networks and they're going to keep it like open source and you'll have always on connectivity. So they will provide this, the, the bouncer and you just connect to it and use it on whatever network you want to like that's, that's game changing, like revolution style. That's why I named, they didn't, they don't ever say the word revolution in their con their announcement, but that's why I'm calling it that because it has a potential to change a lot of usage for IRC. So this is really cool to see, uh, especially like stuff like Kiwi IRC. Like you, if you could use Kiwi IRC to have like a web-based thing that you connect to a bouncer and all this other stuff, you could have 
so much potential for this um, this new project. So I, I'm looking forward to see what happens. And um, yeah, if you want to see, learn more, you can go to irc.com and read the blog post or the announcement from the London Trust Media Group. So yeah, up next in the show is from really good news of the IRC revolution to uh, not very good news. I mean, technically it's good because they finally solved it, but the fact that it took so long is, you know, anyway. So Docker has had some crypto mining issues with a crypto mining botnet. And the problem with it is not necessarily that this happened. It's the fact that the way the Docker have like addressed it or took forever to address it. So you might you may remember a couple like a, a couple weeks ago or a couple episodes ago that there were there was a news about a crypto miner being found in a canonical snap store. So one, a a couple snaps had a crypto miner attached to it, and within about a week, it was detected and found and then reported. And within about an hour of the report, it was removed, and they fixed the problem very very quickly. Now Docker did not do that, so. They finally have fixed the problem and removed these malicious images, and there are about 17 of them. And it took them 10 months to do it. There was a bug report posted on their GitHub issues, it can, like describing what it was doing, showing where like what crypto mining it was doing, even what cryptocurrency it was mining for, and it, you could actually track the all the mining that it was doing. And find out like how much, co how many coins of that particular currency they were doing, they were getting. So they knew what was going on. They knew it was there, and they still ignored it for almost a year. That's a good sign of why Docker is not is losing popularity at this point because it, you know some Docker images are not being updated, some Docker images are being abandoned and still available for users and things like that. And then you have things like this where they know for almost a year and still do nothing. It doesn't really convey a good message in my opinion, but hey. Anyway, so if you're interested, they that the people who put the mining stuff in those images were able to get 549 Monero digital coins, which approximately were worth about $90,000. So I guess it was good for them, um, not good for the Docker ecosystem in any way whatsoever. So if you're interested in trying out Docker, maybe consider if looking another option or at least make sure it's up to date and try your best to find out if it has a crypto miner on it or not. Up next in the show is the Steam Summer Sale is active. Also, there's a Fanatical Sale as well, so you can check that out too. But let's talk about first the Linux on, the games on sale for TuxDigital.com. So you can go to TuxDigital.com. And if you go to the website, the official Tux Digital website, and you click here, it says Linux Games on Sale. That'll take you to TuxDigital.com slash Games on Sale. And this is a quick, easy access to get to various different parts of gaming sales for various, you know, different platforms that provide, you know, purchasing of games. So Steam, for example, Humble Bundle, Fanatical, uh, GOG, Feral, Itch.io. Itch.io? I'm not sure how that's supposed to be said. But anyway, uh, be also to be clear, the Humble Bundle links and the Fanatical links are affiliate links, so if you purchase something through those stores, I will get a commission, or TuxDigital specifically will get a commission for that purchase. Uh, but anyway, moving on, I wanted to talk about the Steam Summer Sale that's going on. So, uh, oh, first, before I, I forget... The reason why I made this games on sale thing is because there's a variety of different things um, about these platforms that you can go to, and it's kind of complicated because their search engines are all different, and it's kind of weird like how you get to specifically only stuff on sale and specifically only Linux things. So each one of these things have their Linux uh, their store search pre-filtered for Linux gaming. So if you click the link for the Steam sale, it will take you to showing you only games that are on sale that are running Linux, that are runnable on Linux. So uh, I think this is quite useful. You might as well. So feel free to check out the link in the show notes for the TuxDigital.com slash games on sale or TuxDigital.com slash Steam sale, whatever. Um, but so the, the summer sale for Steam is going on right now, and there's a lot of cool things that are available 
that you might want to check out if you are into gaming, of course. First of all, we have 50% off Rocket League. So you can get it, you can get Rocket League for $9.99. Uh, this is one of my favorite games. If you've never heard about, if you never watched the show before, you might not know that, but I, I really like this game. So really cool that you can get it for pretty cheap now in comparison to its pre normal $20. So uh, if you're interested in that, check that out. But also recently I've been checking out a new game called Ballistic Overkill, which is like a first-person shooter, um, running-gun type shooter game. It also has sniper stuff like that. Well, if you ever heard of Overwatch, it's kind of like Overwatch meets CS:GO or Counter-Strike, and it's a it's a really fun game. And you can get it in the Steam Summer Sale for five ninety-nine or six dollars, which is fifty percent off of the normal price. So if you haven't played this before and you want to check it out. I think it's a really fantastic game, super fun, and if you want to, you can definitely play with me and you know, can just join the tuxdigital.com slash discord or tuxdigital.com slash telegram and you know, hit me up and ask if you want to play it because um, I've been playing this game quite a bit lately. So anyway, Ballistic Overkill, really cool. Also, speaking of Counter-Strike, uh, Counter-Strike is on sale, but also the Valve Complete Pack is on sale. Now, if you have never heard of this, the Valve Complete Pack allows you to buy a bunch of Valve games pretty cheap. Normal price is $200. So no, that, no on that. But the Valve Complete Pack during the Steam Summer Sale is only $15.25. So you get to save 92% for some reason. But anyway, that's awesome. Counter-Strike Global Offensive or CSGO normally is $15. So basically you're paying the price for one game and getting all these other games. So, if you've ever want to play Half Life or Portal, Portal Two, Left 4 Dead Two, you know, etc., then there's you know, plenty of to get Team Fortress. You know, uh, Team Fortress Two in here. Oh wait, no, Team Fortress Two is free. Never mind. So that's you know whatever. You should uh, definitely check this out if you have, if you're interested in getting one of these games. Now, one thing I want to point out that if you search, if you use the Steam search, the Steam sale from Texas.com, you won't be able to get the Valve Complete Pack from that link because for some reason it says that it doesn't support Linux. Yet only one game in the pack doesn't support Linux. So it breaks the search and Left 4 Dead is the first one that's the reason why it doesn't show it. I don't know why that is, but if it, I, I guess if, it, if any of the games don't work on it, the whole pack doesn't consider working. I don't know. So I'm going to leave a separate link for that in the show notes. So if you're interested in that, uh, look for that. The Steam link is also on sale for 95% off. Now, this is interesting because it allows you to play uh, games on your desk, on your TV, while you're, you're technically your game, it, your computer is powering the game, but it sends it through your internet or your local internet to, or local LAN, basically, to display it on your TV. And it's, pre it's a pretty cool idea. And the price now is super ridiculous of $2.50. I don't know if that includes shipping or not, but that's super, super cheap. Delivery delays are expected due to high order volume. Yeah, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. So $2.50 for a Steam link if you're interested. Also, Fanatical is having a summer deal or summer sale. So if you're interested in checking that out, you should definitely do so. Some of the games that are on the Steam sale are not included on the Fanatical sale and vice versa. So it's definitely worth checking out both of them. And if you do purchase on Fanatical, as I said, there is a referral link for TuxDigital.com slash Fanatical sale. That will benefit the TuxDigital uh, account. But another thing I want to bring up is that they're doing the Red Hot sale. So if you put in the coupon code RED10, you save an extra 10% on top of the already existing uh, discount that's on this their their sale, so be sure to check out. You know, to compare the difference between which one's the better price, and if Fanatical is the better price, you can get an even better price with Red Ten. A new release of Turok Remastered is now available on Linux. So if you have ever played back in the day the Nintendo sixty four version of Turok, which is basically like Doom meets Tomb Raider meets Jurassic Park or something. So it's like an exploratory um, puzzle game that has first-person shooter elements with, uh, you know, guns as also crossbows and things and just you know regular bows and arrows and things like that. 
So where you kill dinosaurs and various different monsters and things. It's a weird, really weird, fun game back in the day. And they've made a remastered version. Yes, that was a dinosaur that had a gun. Anyway, so this is a really cool, cool game back in the day. And um, I'm kind of glad to see that it's now available on Linux. Now, the reason I think it's really cool that it is available, but as far as like the price, the normal price is $20. And that's a bit much for a game that was made in 1997. But thankfully it's on the Steam Summer Sale. And $5 is not so bad. So if you're interested in checking it out, uh, this would be a good time to try it for $5 because that's way better than 20 But anyway, this one has a whole new remastered version. It's kind of weird that they don't call it something like Turok Remastered or anything like that. It's just they just call it Turok, so it's kind of confusing as far as like is it been updated or not? Has it been updated, I guess? But anyway, so it's been improved by like level design. Gameplay's been improved. You can now have uh, custom keyboard and mouse inputs, even gamepad inputs if you want. They've added Steam achievements, uh, OpenGL support for vertical sync, all kinds of new things. And what's also really cool about it is that, you know, based on, I mean, really, I don't know exactly if this is the case, but maybe based on the the actions, uh, like the you know the the reactions of the of the crowd, I guess the crowd the purchasing of the uh, the community for Turok, they might make Turok two available as well. So you might be interested in that. Uh, it's also on summer sale, but it's only for Windows. And someone asked uh, Ryan Gordon or Iculus, who ported the game, who ported Turok to Linux, if Turok two would be coming. He said that he's hoping for that, but that's all he gave for information about it. So. Maybe it's based on the sales. I don't know. Maybe not. Anyway, if you're if you have any kind of nostalgia for Turok, like I I think I might actually buy it for the five dollars twenty, uh, guaranteed no, but five dollars, it's possible. Anyway, so Turok on Linux, pretty cool. Up next in the show is you can now play Trackmania Nations Forever via a snap. So this is this is a, a arcade style racing game that you can play, and what's really interesting is that it was made in 2008, but you can still play it, and this, you can even play online now. The servers, even after 10 years, the servers are still up, and you can still play like all the maps and everything. And this is actually kind of cool because the reason why it's in, in, you know included in this episode is because they there was a this snap it was made by the the snap crafters where you can they're combining the Windows game with wine wrapped inside of the Snap. So you can basically, kind of like the wine pack I talked about earlier in the show, the wine Snap, as this is now being referred to as, allows you to do the same similar thing of having wine and the game built into a Snap. So you don't have to do a lot of, like, to, to get the game working. And now if you, like, I didn't really describe it previously about why this is important. That's why I think it's really cool. Is because you know the running wine, you can def you can definitely do that on your system, and there are all things that make it easier, like play on Linux, but wine bottles and things like that that allow you to you know separate wine from itself, so you can have multiple versions of multiple different things of wine, so you can multiple tweaks and change things up in configurations for different versions of wine, so that you can have them working with different applications. But it takes a little bit of effort. Well, it takes a lot of effort to to set all, all that up. Now, if you only have one wine, you basically are limited very much to what you can run with that one version and one configuration. And with wine bottles and play on Linux, it allows you to do multiple versions of wine and multiple configurations, but it's still pretty involved to do it. Now, this is cool because you can just use the snap or the wine pack to install the application with wine, with the configurations already set up, and just play the game. Now, in this particular case, this particular game has a certain specific license that doesn't allow you to, uh, you know, uh, provide the game with the snap. So they did a clever, cool licensing, solu licensing solution by when you install the snap, it has an auto-downloading installer thing that when you launch the game, it will start downloading the game and then install it from their stuff without having to be pre-packaged in the snap. So you, it's still super easy to install and get ready to go. It just doesn't require you to have everything in the snap specifically. So like that's a really interesting 
thing, but when you do install it, it installs it to the snap. It solves like the licensing issue, the configuration issue, the 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 confine the compartmentalizing of wine issue, like all kinds of stuff. It's pretty cool. And uh it's also a pretty good game, so if you want to check that out, uh link in the show notes. And I don't know if it's on sale. No, oh, it's a free game. Never mind. Doesn't matter. It's, it's totally on sale for free. <laughs> so finally in this episode of This Week in Linux, we're going to talk about something that's not really Linux related, but is pretty important because, you know, it's not fun. So the EU Parliament Legal Affairs Committee has uh, voted on the directive for copyright for reform, which is terrible. Just terrible. So, unfortunately, there's multiple things about this that are not good. There are a couple things that are actually good, but it's still not good overall because there's so many things that are just atrocious that it removes all anything, that, anything that's beneficial. Like, the relevancy of those is, is just gone. So, it seems that, you know, SOPA and PIPA and the, you know, removal of net neutrality rules and things like that, they all the effort that U.S., government has been trying to do to ruin the internet the eu decided hey us too don't don't forget about us we want to ruin things too so that's what this is for i assume just ruin things because if you look at article 3 article 11 article 13 they are awful absolutely terrible first of all article 11 is what's known as the link tax which essentially says it's uh, anyone using snippets of journalistic content to get to first needs to get a license or pay a fee to the publisher of its use online. So, for example, if you decide to link a Twitter post somewhere in a blog post, you have to pay for the ability to link that Twitter post. It's really ridiculous. Like, it doesn't even take any consideration whatsoever with, like, public press or freedom of the press or uh, fair use idea concepts, anything like that. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Now, if that wasn't terrible enough... They decided to go, you know, much further and decide now that they're requiring online platforms to monitor their users' uploads and try to prevent copyright infringement through automated filtering. This is atrocious. So platforms that use content generated by users like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and Google Plus and all these places like Mastodon, Diaspora, um, all kinds of the, all these places are now going to have to deal with monitoring and filtering everything that comes to their servers. Now, some platforms, that's possible. You know, YouTube does it already anyway. Not very well. Actually, it's awful, terrible, but they do it. It's just, it's just going to be a catastrophe, really. So if this passes, it's going to be a, they, they technically have voted. The, affairs, the Legal Affairs Committee has voted on it, and they have approved it. But it still has a few more things that it has to get through, and they're basically saying that um, if you look at the Creative Commons post about this particular topic, they said that on there's going to be another vote will be on July 4th that will decide um, to reopen the copyright reform for debate or to push it through. So a lot of places are not you know very optimistic about this. This is you know this could be awful. Like the GDPR has some benefits to it. So you could you could argue that you know both ways whether it's good or bad, but in this case is it's just ninety nine percent terrible, um, or at least the things that are good are vastly outweighed by the things that are terrible. So hopefully this doesn't happen, and they do bring it back into discussion, and they don't do it. But who knows? Hopefully it doesn't happen. But I'll let you know if it does. And probably won't be able to display the screen of the things that I'm talking about if it does happen. So I have to just show a picture of text or something or just, I don't know. Anyway. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please hit that like button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, and others by going to TuxDigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to TuxDigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux. Just a reminder, this show is recorded live, so if you'd like to join us in the live chat room to discuss the latest Linux good news, then be sure to subscribe and ring that bell so that you get notified when the show goes live. Thanks again for watching. 
I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.